Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 to 23 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew 17, 22 to 23. Matthew 17, 22 to 23. Have you ever been in a, in a situation where you did not want to know the ending or the outcome of something? We have, we have a, a cultural expression that we use that is just kind of uh, common and is courteous to people uh, when that's the case. We, spoiler alert, you're supposed to declare this beforehand so that anybody who doesn't want to know the outcome of something might close their ears or move away from the conversation. We do this frequently with, with movies. Uh, we do this with, particularly with sporting events. If you've recorded the event and you don't want to know how it, how it ends, you definitely want to know if somebody's going to talk about that particular thing and the conclusion uh, therein. This is uh, uh, particularly true of movies. Uh, I remember when The Sixth Sense came out uh, some 16, 20, 30 years ago, however long it's been now. Uh, I won't tell you how it ends, okay? So no spoilers going on here. But that ending of that movie was particularly important. And if you already knew the ending, then it changed the entire movie for you. And so you avoided the ending. But the other thing is true also when you got to the end of the movie and once you once you watched the ending and, ha- and saw how it comes about, then going back and re-watching it made you see everything in the movie entirely different. This was true with a lot of M. Night Shyamalan's movies. This is also true of sporting events. You know, you, you record the sporting event and somehow the ending is spoiled for you. Your team loses. This is particularly true when I record Cowboys games. I go back and, and I, I find out the ending and I, I, I kind of skim through and watch and they score a touchdown and everyone cheers. And I go, it's worthless, guys. There's no hope. Just give up now. You already know the ending. Well, in our passage this morning, this is the second time Jesus has disclosed to his disciples how everything's going to end. And you'll see that the disciples' response is less than encouraged, they're actually distressed. Let's look at these. Short, two little verses here. Matthew 17, 22 to 23. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for this passage that we have read and that we are going to talk about this morning, that the truth of it would sink down deep into our hearts, that we would be convicted by every word and convinced of its truth. We can only do that through the power of your Holy Spirit, which we pray you would open our eyes so that we may see, open our ears so we may hear, open our hearts so we may obey in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we, we have now reached the second of three total predictions predictions that Jesus is going to give to his disciples about his impending death. Now, the first one we saw just a couple of weeks ago in, uh, in chapter 16, verse 21, and the next one we will see in chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. And Jesus is giving these predictions to his disciples as a means of preparing them 
for an event that's soon to take place, namely that he's going to die. But if you will remember, the last time that he gave this prediction, it didn't go so well. Remember, this is the scene where Jesus tells them about his, he's going to die, and then Peter comes in and, and rebukes Jesus and pulls him aside, and he says, Lord, what's all this negative talk about death? We're here for you. We're not going to let any of that happen. And then Jesus calls Peter Satan, and everything gets really awkward there for a moment, and we all sense the tension in the air. Jesus is clearly bent on preparing his disciples for what is about to take place because he knows that his death is not something that they're anticipating. His death is certainly not something that they're expecting. But what these prophecies of Jesus help us to see is that Jesus himself is okay with the plan of God. But not only is he okay with the plan of God, but he's actually submitting himself to it. He knows what it is, and he's submitting himself to it. He knows it's going to happen. And the disciples, at the very least, are being told that all, of, all that's coming down the pike, all that's about to happen, is supposed to take place. They're being told unequivocally, what you're about to witness, I know it's coming, and it's supposed to take place. So at least one point becomes very clear just by Jesus reiterating so much this same narrative is that they would be reassured that Jesus is in control of all of this. No matter what happens, he's in control of it. Remember there's that night that Jesus is betrayed. Peter has his weapon, and Peter is ready to fight, and all the people are coming to arrest him. And we see this in Matthew 26, 53 and 54, where Jesus responds, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? For us who are studying this book week in and week out, the repetition means that Matthew, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has intended for us, for you and me, as we read this, to have a repeated warning. And so there will be some things that I say in this text and in chapter 20 as we talk about Jesus' death that's going to be kind of a repeat for you, things that you've heard over the last couple of weeks but these reminders are important or else Matthew would have just told us once that Jesus made this prophecy. But that being the case, there are also a couple of things that are different about what Jesus says here that I want us to key in on or to, to look at. And they give us some insight into what it means to actually be a disciple of Jesus and to actually follow him living on this side of the resurrection. What does it mean for us as disciples living on this side of the resurrection? We know the ending. What does it mean for us? And anytime we talk about the resurrection uh, in our churches today, there's a lot of confusion as to what it means to be resurrected, what we're talking about, what we're not talking about. 
And I think we'll be able to straighten some of that out this morning with this passage. So there are two aspects of this passage that I want us to hone in on this morning. The first is this. Jesus established the kingdom of God by his death and resurrection. Jesus established the kingdom of God by his death and resurrection. Uh, Look at just a reminder of what he says, what Jesus says in, in 22 and 23. Uh, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Now, in the Gospel of John, Jesus goes back and forth from Galilee to Jerusalem a number of times. He goes back and forth uh, to Jerusalem a number of times. Jesus was a Jewish man. And as such, being Jewish, being raised in a Jewish household... He would have gone to Jerusalem at the very least three times times a year. He would have made these pilgrimage feasts, uh, trips to Jerusalem to celebrate the pilgrimage feast, the Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. So at the very least, he would have celebrated those feasts in Jerusalem. And we know, because of the Gospel of John, that he was going back and forth at least several times a year to participate in these feasts. But we don't see that in Matthew at all. And we don't see it in Mark either. Matthew has told this story, and he's clearly left out some details that he really, doesn't really care about. But Matthew has told this story so that the very end of the gospel, which we're getting to, is one trip, one journey down to Jerusalem as Jesus prepares for his death and his resurrection. So the end of the Gospel of Matthew feels a little bit like Lord of the Rings. Like there's this ominous journey that they're preparing for and they're getting ready for and Jesus is preparing them for even up to now. And so Jesus has been preparing his disciples uh, for the first 18 chapters and then in chapter 19, they're, they're getting closer to Jerusalem. So it's not until chapter 19 that they begin to get closer to Jerusalem where Jesus will ultimately die there. And so here in verse 22, they're gathering, presumably for their journey to Jerusalem that's just soon to take place. And he refers to himself, Jesus refers to himself there before his disciples as the Son of Man. As a a, a title that he's quite fond of for himself, he refers to himself as the Son of Man about 30 times in Matthew alone. And he does so here again. But But in the context of what he's talking about, there's some irony to him calling himself the Son of Man, and then talking about his death. When we hear the phrase, Son of Man, most of us think uh, of language similar to Jesus being the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God because, why? Because he has a divine nature. He is from God. He is co-eternal with the Father. He is from heaven. He is the Son of God because he has a divine nature. And then we also think of Son of Man in that same kind of vernacular, that same kind of term. Just like He's the Son of God, He's also the Son of Man. Because He has a human nature. Because He's going to die. So when He says Son of Man, which is Jesus' favorite name for Himself, we think it just becomes another way of Jesus reaffirming to us that He's mortal and that He's going to die. He's a son of man. He's a son of Mary and the stepson of Joseph. And so he's going to die because he's the son of man. So we read passages like this where Jesus refers to his own impending death 
And we think, well, it's natural that he would call himself then the Son of Man. He's mortal. But that's not the reason he's using the phrase here. Jesus uses the title Son of Man, and it's a reference to Daniel 7, 13, and 14, which says this. Daniel is seeing visions. He says, I saw in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. In this scene, in fact, just before what I read there, there is this scene where the Ancient of Days comes in and takes His seat on the throne. The Ancient of Days being Daniel's words to describe God the Father. And there are beasts that are around this throne and they're causing a lot of chaos. They're being hectic. We later learn in Daniel 7 that those beasts are kingdoms or kings. They're nations. They represent uh, kingdoms and authorities. And they're warring for power one over the other. The one that comes after, you know, badder and worse than the one that came before it. And each one is losing power to its successor as these beasts vie for authority and control. And then the Ancient of Days walks in and takes his seat on the throne and everything gets kind of quiet. And one of the kingdoms is utterly destroyed right there in front of everybody. And then Daniel sees that the rest of the beasts, he says in verse 12, the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. But their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So their dominion was stripped of them. Their power and authority was taken away from them. And they were allowed to live and be for a season and a time. But then we get this scene in verses 13 and 14 that I just read. Daniel sees this vision of someone coming on the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man. And he comes into the presence of the Ancient of Days and he approaches the throne. And the Ancient of Days gives to him the dominion, presumably that has been stripped away from all the other beasts, and places it on his head. He gives what Daniel describes as dominion and glory and a kingdom and a peop- that all peoples... Nations and languages should serve him. Then he describes the kingdom of this one like the Son of Man, that the dominion, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This figure that Daniel calls one like a Son of Man is interesting. Because not only does he come into the presence of the Ancient of Days, having the appearance of a Son of Man, Not only does he come into the presence of the Ancient of Days and receive authority, but his authority is unlike the authority that the beasts have had before him. 
His authority is one that will never perish. He also receives worship from the peoples. Anytime a king receives worship from the peoples, that's a bad thing. But not for this one. He receives worship from the peoples. And these peoples are representing all peoples, different nations and languages. And the worship of him and his dominion is never going to pass away. He is clearly man. He's this one like the son of man. Yet he also comes riding on a cloud. Like we see God riding on a cloud in Psalm 19.1. Or sorry, Isaiah 19.1. And so he's clearly man Yet he strolls into the presence of the Ancient of Days, riding on a cloud like God does. So he is this God-man figure. And he comes before the Ancient of Days and he receives kingdom authority, a dominion and peoples and nations and languages serve him. You don't have to tell a first century Jew how important this passage is in Daniel 7. How important this passage of the God-man is who comes riding on the clouds of heaven. In fact, Jesus will reference this vision from Daniel about himself in response to a question that Caiaphas will ask him at the end of the book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 63 and following, Caiaphas asked Jesus this. Jesus is on trial for his life, and he says, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. Caiaphas understands exactly who Jesus is claiming to be and exactly what he's referencing. So much so that he accuses Jesus of blasphemy, making himself out to be this God-man figure that's depicted for us there in Daniel chapter 7. But the important aspect of what Jesus tells Caiaphas is also related to what he tells the disciples in our passage this morning and related to what he tells the disciples at the end of this book, at the very end, at its its conclusion. Jesus tells Caiaphas, from now on, Caiaphas, from this day forward, you are going to see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. From this day forth and forevermore, you're going to see it. You're going to be witness to this. And then after his resurrection... He tells his disciples in that famous passage that we've come to call the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So he's warning Caiaphas in that vision in Daniel that it's going to be inaugurated in your lifetime, Caiaphas. It's about to happen. You're going to crucify me and I'm going to rise again on the third day. It's going to happen. You're going to see it. After the resurrection, he tells the disciples that it's finished. All authority has been given to me. Seen in Daniel, it's happened. I have the authority. It's been placed on my head. The dominion has been stripped away from all the other beasts, though they're allowed to remain for a little while. In our passage, he tells the disciples 
Daniel, son of man, is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And on the third day, he'll be raised. But it's that last little bit of what Jesus says that's strange to many. The way in which the picture of Daniel 7 is going to happen, the way that Jesus is going to begin to inaugurate this kingdom is through a defeat of death whereby he will submit to dying and three days later be raised by the power of God. And we take for granted today when we say that Jesus was raised, that everyone that hears that is all on the same page. They were all thinking the same thing. But I don't think that's entirely true. So let me be clear. When we say Jesus died, Christians mean that he first physically died. He didn't faint. He didn't swoon. The Romans, who were expert executioners, didn't presume he was dead, but he wasn't actually dead. He was dead. He was dead dead. If somebody had said to him, Jesus, wake up, he wouldn't have responded because he was dead. He was that kind of dead. Rigor mortis had already begun to set in on his body soon after he died. Because that's what happens when you die. He was placed in a tomb. And his body began to experience decay as happens to a body immediately after it dies. Then his soul went to be with the Lord. And three days later, that same body that was decaying and dying was transformed into a body that is suited for eternity. His soul came back to his body. It was remade. His body was remade into a body that suited for eternity. Meaning that when he got up, his joints didn't pop like a bunch of mousetraps going on. His soul is reunited with his body. And this event is a miracle that only God can do. This is, there's no naturalistic explanation for what happened. This is a miracle that only God can do. And so he got up and he physically walked out of the same tomb where they laid him. And what that means is if you were to go back to that tomb today, if you were to know the exact location of it and you were to walk in there, if you saw any bones there, they wouldn't be Jesus' bones. We clear? Clear what that means, that he died and that he rose again. This is the central, most important aspect of Christianity. Amen. The resurrection of Jesus. If it did not happen, everything that we've just sung about, the reason we're here is meaningless if there is no resurrection. All of it. The Bible, meaningless. Hope for all eternity, meaningless. If there is no resurrection. If Jesus suffered as a man and died and then just perished there and never got up from the grave, everything that we're doing is utterly meaningless. It does not matter. Even self-avowed atheist Jordan Peterson 
recently admitted to this very fact. He said it's curious about the resurrection because there's so much evidence for it. And this, more than even if there is a God, this central claim to Christianity is the most important thing there is. If it happened, all the rest of us are wrong. If it happened, we seriously have to consider Christianity. I'd say more than that. Now, consider for a moment why the resurrection had to happen. Why did the bodily resurrection of Jesus have to happen? How, in other words, let me ask it this way. How would God pronounce on someone a verdict of not guilty on all charges? If God is the judge of all things, He's the judge of all creation, how would He pronounce before the watching world, how would He pronounce on someone a verdict of not guilty? How would He declare that to them? How would God vindicate someone of all wrongdoing? Well, in order to answer that, we have to first answer the question, what are we all guilty of? Right? We're, we're all, we know that because that's common to all of us. From Genesis 3, we see the answer. We are Adam's children, and we are therefore rendered incapable of inheriting the earth and stewarding it appropriately as God has commanded us, exercising dominion over God's good creation because by virtue of Adam's transgression there in the garden, we too, his children, know good and evil. That's what has been handed down to us. We have the knowledge of good and evil, which we were not created with, which Adam decided to disobey God and reach out and take for himself. The knowledge of good and evil. And that has been handed down from generation to generation. And how do we know that it has been handed down from generation to generation? Because everyone dies. Everyone was given the same punishment the death penalty. This is how God aims to hold us accountable to the guilt of Adam's sin by death. You and I will die as a result of our complicity in Adam's sin. How then would God declare openly that someone was not guilty on all charges? Well, if the penalty of sin is death, then I suppose if someone was killed, God would raise that person from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is an ultimate vindication of Jesus as the one and only Son of God who was perfectly sinless before God, yet who suffered the wrath of God for my sin. And as Peter says, the grave had no claim on him. But in his death, and resurrection, he not only has all authority under heaven and earth, but he has created for himself a people. A people of all nations, of all languages, of all tongues. A people who profess faith in him that his death and resurrection are sufficient to pay for my sin and to reconcile all of us to God. 
And the New Testament is very clear that Jesus has done this, that by virtue of his death and resurrection, Paul tells us in Philippians 2, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. In other words... Jesus established the kingdom of God by his death and resurrection. But second, resurrection is the result of discipleship. Resurrection is the result of discipleship. The disciples' reaction uh, in verse 23 is, how shall we say, less than stellar. All right. Verse 23, it says at the end, and they were greatly distressed. They were sad. They were, the disciples were disappointed. They have apparently missed the part about the resurrection altogether. The only thing that they heard about is the death, and they missed him saying that on the third day he would rise again. But Matthew tells us that they were greatly distressed. They were sad at this news. I want you to put yourself in the place of the disciples you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that this man is the king. You know beyond the shadow of a doubt this man is the Messiah. You have followed him from the beginning. You have seen him walk on water. You have seen him raise the dead. You have seen him heal the sick. You have seen him cast out demons. You've seen him cure the paralytic. You've seen him open the eyes of the blind. You've seen him open the ears of the deaf. Three of you have walked up on a mountain and you watched him in all of his glory unfurled before you turn around and talk to Moses and Elijah. Is there any doubt in your mind who this guy is? That this guy is who he says he was? No, there's not. You've heard him preach that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You've heard him telling them how all of these things are going to pan out. You've heard him attacking some of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You've heard him go toe-to-toe with the authorities from Jerusalem. He has command over the Sabbath even. You are sure that this man is the Messiah and you desperately want him to establish his kingdom right here and right now. And then he tells you he's going to die. You can practically hear the hearts of the disciples break. You can practically hear them snap in two. You don't want him to die. You want to be with him right there when he establishes the kingdom. You want to be right at his right hand when he does this. But this is the irony of these two little verses. The disciples are getting what they want. They want his kingdom. They want to be in his kingdom, and they're getting what they want, but they don't understand what it's going to take to make it happen. You may recall the passage that's actually in Matthew chapter 20, just a few chapters before, uh, just a few chapters after now, we'll get to it in a couple years, where, where Jesus is going to be approached by the mother of James and John, perhaps one of my favorite passages in all of scripture. She's impressed with her boys, as every mom is. My mom used to tell me, uh, every old crow thinks hers is the blackest, you know? Every, 
Every mom thinks hers is the best, are the best children, you know. Um, the mom comes before Jesus and asks if her boys can sit on Jesus' right hand and her, his left hand in, when he comes into his kingdom. And he turns to them and he asks, probably with a smile on his face. No, it doesn't say. I don't know. But it seems like, are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And the boys say, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, we can drink it. Oh, yeah, oh, we can drink it, Jesus. We can do it. Because they don't quite understand what it's going to take for this kingdom to come about. In their minds, Jesus is capable, just like he's walking on water and multiplying bread, he's capable of snapping his fingers and establishing all of this kingdom. If we have to fight with other, against others as we go into the, the city of Jerusalem, if we're going to have to take up swords and go to town, and we're going to have to fight other people that are resisting us, where do you want to be? I want to be right next to Jesus. The one who multiplied the bread and walked on the water and did all those kinds of things. If we have to fight with other people around, there's no better place for us to be than at his left hand and at his right hand. There's no safer place in all the world. But Jesus says, oh, you will drink it. And it's not safe. Remember, their thoughts, their aspirations of this kingdom are a very much a drive out the Romans kind of kingdom in the here and now. And so you can see that death is a disappointment to them. It lets them down. R.T. France says it like this, the repeated inclusion of the resurrection at the conclusion of Jesus' destiny in Jerusalem seems to have gone completely over the disciples' heads. The prediction of his, re- of his rejection, his suffering, and death so dominated their thinking that they could not see beyond the death to the vindication and glory. They want the kingdom, but the kingdom that they think they want is not the kingdom that's best. They want a kingdom that's of this world. But the kingdom that Jesus is going to give them overcomes this world. The kingdom that they think they want has them marching into Jerusalem and taking up arms to drive out the Romans and then keeping peace in the land where sacrifice and temple worship can be free and unencumbered. That's the kingdom that they think they want. But the kingdom that Jesus is coming to offer is one where all dominion from all beasts throughout all time is taken away and given to him. Where sacrifice is torn asunder and all blessing and honor and glory and might will forever and ever be given to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb who was slain. The kingdom that the disciples think that they want It's not the kingdom that's best for them. The kingdom that they think they want will have them fighting a bloody war to take it. It will have them constantly under threat of attack from foreign enemies that they're presumably going to have to defend against. But the kingdom that Jesus is coming to give them is one that will see them love not their own lives even unto death. What a radical difference that is. There's only one thing that can change your mindset 
from a, I have to go and take it and fight a bloody war and fight for what I want to loving not your own life even unto death. There's only one thing that can make that change and that is the resurrection. That's the resurrection of the dead. When the disciples see the resurrected Jesus, their minds will change and they will begin to understand the kingdom, that the kingdom that Jesus is offering them and to us by faith is a kingdom where their bodies will be resurrected to life. Now listen to me because many Christians have, especially of late in the church, have misunderstood this completely and do not understand this concept. As Christians, we do not believe that heaven is the end of your journey. I know. Lots of songs we sing. Many things have been taught to us since we were kids. This is not our home. We're just passing through. What if I told you, heaven is not your home. You're just passing through. Listen to me, if you're a disciple of Christ, when you die, your soul goes to be with the Lord in heaven. That's true. Your body, just like Jesus's, goes, except ours probably in the ground, his in a tomb, goes to rot. But that's not the end. The resurrection that happened to Jesus will happen to you. The resurrection that happened to Jesus will happen to you. The result of discipleship is a resurrected, real, eternal, material body reconstituted out of the ashes that are left behind from your body. A resurrection. You will not live eternally in a disembodied state. That is pagan. That is not Christian. You will not live forever in a disembodied state. You were created human, body, and soul, and you will be human, body, and soul for eternity. You will live eternally as Jesus is now in your body resurrected and remade for eternity. Your body might be in the depths of the ocean. I hope that is not true of mine. (laughs) But it might be in the depths of the ocean, but the sea will give up its dead. Your body might be, as is the course of normal human events, in a grave. And the grave will give up its dead. Your body will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye, just as Jesus' body was also remade and resurrected, and we will dwell forever on a remade earth with Jesus as our King. Eternally. But this is what I absolutely love about the effect of the resurrection on everybody that understands it. The resurrection of of the body to a Christian that understands what the outcome is promised, what outcome is promised to him or to her. I love this effect. And in the Bible, we get to look at it from beginning to end. The disciples here in our passage are greatly distressed. They're sad, right, at the idea of death. 
They're sad throughout most of the rest of this book. Their distress will even lead them to flee from the cross to avoid death. They're terrified of it. And you can understand why. They flee at the thought of death. But then they see the resurrected Jesus. They eat with him. They touch his arms. They talk with him. They look at him. They watch him eat food. And and they think to themselves, I presume, you're not a ghost. You're, You're a real guy. In fact, you're more real than I am. Your body's better than mine. Everything that you have is, is far superior to what I'm, I'm living in now. And this greatly distressed group will get it. And then do you know what will happen in the book of Acts and beyond? Do you know what they begin to do? They'll be threatened with beatings for them running out and telling everyone the gospel. They're going to be threatened by principalities and rulers, those beasts that have dominion for a little while. They'll be telling them, do you know what's going to happen to you if you continue to tell the gospel? We're going to beat you. We're going to put you in prison. We're going to behead you. We're going to boil you in in water. We're going to push you off a building to your death. Do you understand what's going to happen? And none of it will distress them. Not a bit of it will distress them. The authorities will say, but we'll kill you. (laughs) You can only improve my state. Jesus is going to raise my body from the grave. He's going to put that head right back on. He's going to take away all the wrinkles. He's going to take away all the aches and pains. Not that there's anything wrong with wrinkles. You get emails, you know. He's going to fit my body so that it lasts for eternity. You can't do anything but improve my life. If you kill me, my soul goes to be with the Lord, and Paul tells me that's far better. Then in the end, Jesus is going to raise my body. I have not lost a thing. I have gained everything. So what do we do with this? I'll tell you. Let the resurrection of the body Let the result of discipleship, let the end of the movie ruin this life for you. Think about the resurrection of the dead. Think about where your soul will go to be with the Lord and what he's going to do when this thing all comes to nothing. And let the end of the movie ruin what this life can offer you. See all of the events that take place on a daily basis totally different because of what you know to be true of the resurrection. Let it ruin everything for you. You will have real interactions and real fellowship with people 
We think sometimes of heaven like this floaty place where our spirit goes and wanders around and, and we don't really know and we're told that it's better, but I'm not sure it's better and I'm kind of worried about it and it's sort of weird and I don't know what to think about. But what the resurrection is promising you is have real interaction, real fellowship with real people that will not end, that will not be tainted by sin, that will be real, true, genuine fellowship like you've never had before. And it will have no threat of being torn asunder by death. You won't know cancer. You won't know aches and pains. You won't know impending death. You won't have any of that to look forward to. That kind of fellowship you won't have anybody to vote for. Praise God. Amen. That means that you can be risky for the gospel. That means you can be really risky for the gospel because this place can't touch you, it can only improve, it can't touch you. Suffering, sure, may last, but for a season. But I can afford to be risky because I know my situation is soon to improve. I can be risky. And do you know that 100% of all people that came in contact with the resurrected Christ were incredibly risky? But second, I want you to put yourselves in the shoes of someone who has no hope after death. There are plenty of people out there. I have met one over the past few weeks and we've been studying the book of John together. And we've had regular conversations. His first question to me, I told all of you, was how do I not fear death? And I said, I've got these things called Sunday school answers. <laughs> this is a softball. I can tell you this right now. So last week, we we're studying the book of John and we're talking about the resurrection of the dead. By faith in Christ, resurrection of the dead. And he tells me, he says, so you you're telling me that if I die, I will believe in Jesus and I die, I will die just like everyone else. My body and soul will be separated for a time, but then one day I will rise from the dead again. And he started to laugh in this sort of nervous laughter, like he's misunderstood it. And I looked him straight in the eyes, and I said, that's exactly what I'm telling you. Immediately stopped laughing. He said, that's so good. I believe in Jesus. Tell others. They have no hope. And they're terrified of death. They might not admit it to you at first, but they are terrified of death. And they have no hope for what happens afterwards. Tell other people in the church. Ask them how you feel about the resurrection. Talk to them about the resurrection of Jesus. If you can't talk to your brothers and sisters that are meeting here with worship, in worship, how are you ever going to be, tell, to be able to tell anybody outside of this room about Jesus. Talk to them about the resurrection. Remind each other of these truths, as Paul tells us. We have plenty of organizations in this city. Tuscaloosa International Friends is one of those that we've promoted here a number of times in this church where you are virtually guaranteed 
to meet with somebody from another nation that probably, with about 98% certainty, does not believe in Jesus. And the worst thing that you risk by telling them is that they think you're crazy and they never want to talk to you again. And eventually, in just a few years, they go back to the country that, where you've never been and you'll never see them again. That's a pretty low risk of sharing the gospel. But there's plenty of other opportunities out there of people you engage with on a daily basis where you can ask them very simple questions. What, what do you think happens when you die? Just curious. What do you think happens when we die? Well, have you ever heard of Jesus being raised from the dead? Tell me what you think about that. What is your belief about that? Did he really raise from the dead? Let me tell you, there's no event in human history that has more proof behind it than the resurrection of Jesus. Look it up and trust in it. Because as we tell about this Jesus, we give hope. As people believe they have eternal life where we will live in a resurrected state because the end of discipleship is resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that our body is encouraged. I pray that we are reminded I pray that we take great care as we go to be sure that people hear a word of truth, the truth of the gospel. Do this in our hearts and minds. Do this in our lives. I pray that you give us a resiliency and a removal of fear and a boldness in our telling. And that in the meantime, we walk out confident people that have hope beyond hope because we have nothing to lose. Pray these in Jesus' name. Amen.